Hush, says the Lord, through his prophet Zephaniah in chapter 1 and verse 7. Hush. On the back of those first six verses we looked at last week, those absolutely terrifying verses that told of such idolatry against God and such awful judgment for that idolatry, as a first response to that pronouncement of dread, Hush, says the Lord in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. There'll be no pushback, no defence counsel, no clever loophole that we like to imagine there will be from the human side of the equation. No, just hush, says the Lord. The day of the Lord must come. Judgment is coming to Judah in the immediate sense of this prophecy. Judah is explicitly named there in verses 4 through 6 that we saw last week. And so this day of the Lord is coming for Judah. But biblical prophecy often has both near and far implications. A near event on a small scale that's really just a model, like a little glimpse of the great and final fulfilment that's yet to come. And the day of the Lord is a good example of that. The warning here through Zephaniah clearly lines up with the Babylonian invasion that that saw Judah carried off into exile about 30-odd years after this warning through Zephaniah for their continuing idolatry. They were cut off from their land, as verse 4 had warned. But at the same time, the warning is clearly about more than that one historical event in ancient Judah. And we can know that because God was still speaking about the day of the Lord after the Jews returned from their exile, through the prophet Zechariah, for example. And of course, so too did Jesus still warn of it. 700-odd years after Zephaniah, Jesus still warned of the day of the Lord. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, his apostles continued to warn about this day of the Lord. Such as in 1 Thessalonians, for example, where Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And so the day of the Lord has to be a bigger concept in the whole Bible story than just for Judah in the time of Zephaniah. And that's because the sin that demands such judgment is not, it's not just an ancient Judah thing. It's a universal thing. So as much later readers of Zephaniah, we have to keep both of those implications in mind. The imminent for Judah and the broader implication that's relevant for all people. But let's start with those people back then, at the time of Zephaniah, because it's easier if we get ourselves a bit of distance from this warning. Let's first just read this in terms of them then, and and the near implications of this prophecy. The the impending judgment on 7th century BC Judah and its capital, the holy city of Jerusalem. Let's pick it up at verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish. A day of punishment is coming for Judah. Verse 12 says, A day of crying, wailing, crashing. Verse 10. 
I think the naming of districts indicates that it will be all-encompassing. The fish gate is where the commoners gathered in Jerusalem. The second quarter was a new estate of Jerusalem where the upper class probably lived. The mortar was a trading precinct in a depression of the city, a, a mortar. And the hills, obviously, the opposite of that, the highest parts of the city, Mount Zion or Mount Ophel or Mount Moriah. The day of the Lord is coming to the holy city from top to bottom, both geographically speaking and socioeconomically speaking. So the people shouldn't get trapped into some kind of technical reading here in these verses, trying to identify, you know, which which specific districts of the city to avoid. No, they need to instead get drawn into the full force of the poetry here. It is coming to every district. The Lord will search the city with lamps. There will be nowhere to hide. Everything will be brought to light. And it's imminent. God warns them in verse 14. It is near and hastening fast. With a rapid-fire description of doom to try to bring them to their senses, therefore. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And if the people then can survive that heavy language, or they're not quite there yet. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Their flesh poured out like dung, and their blood poured out like dust. Do you think the people are supposed to be paying attention yet? Whether we should understand silver and gold here as, as referring to their wealth or, or, or to statues of false gods, probably a case of neither or. Nothing will be able to save the people on that day. It's so graphic, isn't it, this warning of the terror that's coming to Judah at the day of the Lord. And no doubt this is meant to bring about a change in the listeners' lives as this warning comes through Zephaniah. But what had been going on exactly in ancient Judah? Why is this judgment coming? Last week we went through the sin covered in verses 4 to 6. Do you recall? The people had given themselves over to idolatry, false worship, split worship, and non-worship of God. These were the chosen people of God, the, the holy nation that he set aside so as to be a light and a blessing to all the other nations, in order to point all the other nations to Yahweh, the one true God, the Lord. But they had abandoned him, and they had abandoned that call on them. Today we get a few more insights into the sins of Judah to flesh that out from last week's passage. For example, in verse 8, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. The officials and the king's sons could be a literal reference to King Josiah's own sons, who, who were evil kings that were in power later after Josiah at the time when Babylon did come against Jerusalem in several waves. Or, or the phrase could simply reflect 
a judgment on the leadership of Israel and Judah generally, I mean, which, which apart from just a handful of faithful examples, had been ungodly leadership for the best part of 500 years. Either way, I think it's safe to say that having royal blood or high position was not the problem. Rather, a failure to lead people after God was the problem. After all, that was the mandated role of the king in Israel. What about this phrase, those who are arrayed in foreign attire? This is a bit more difficult for us to figure out, but it might allude to the national garments that Israel had been instructed to wear and the underlying reason that they were to wear those garments. Let me read you something from Numbers on this. One of the books of Moses that these people in Judah had lost, if you remember that from last week. Uh, Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So perhaps now by Zephaniah's day, the abandonment of their national attire with those tassels to remind them of the Lord their God was was symbolic of their abandonment of God and his law. It's probably not the foreign garments per se that are the problem, some kind of inner motive that's gone wrong, some kind of rejection of God, again, some kind of idolatry. Another note on their sin comes to us in verse 9. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. This leaping over the threshold is probably the trickiest cultural gap for us to try to cross here, I think. Uh, Two possible meanings, though. One option is that it's it's still referring to the officials from verse 8 as being eager to exploit people. You know, coming in through sly and secret ways rather than, you know, just knocking on the door as would be honest and genuine. Or perhaps it refers to people who don't step on the threshold of the temple. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Ark of God destroyed the statue of the Philistine god Dagon, the Philistines started a superstition about that. And 400 odd years later, perhaps this superstition and perhaps even worship of the Philistine god Dagon had infiltrated Judah. That would probably tie in well with the master's house in the second part of that verse. But we can't be sure. Both options seem quite plausible. Either way, sin is there, and and sin is offensive to God. There is violence and fraud of some kind that needs to be punished. One more note on Judah's sin in verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. This sin is talking about those who think the Lord is disconnected, disinterested, or even powerless to act against their 
wickedness. Again, they are rejecting God as God. There's a poetic image in the Hebrew here that I quite like. I will punish the men congealing on their dregs. Congealing on their dregs. The imagery is, is from winemaking. A freshly fermented wine was left intentionally to rest on its dregs. Or sediment, you know, to develop colour and body and flavour and acidity and so on. But at a certain point, it had to be poured into a new container, separating off the dregs. Otherwise, it would become congealed like sludge and susceptible then to mould and off flavours and all that sort of stuff. It would be ruined. When he says complacent here, God is calling the people of Judah out as being congealed in their sinful idolatry, thickened, ruined, worthless. They think to themselves that, that it's not God's provision that they enjoy in their life, and, and nor does he have any power over their fate. Of course, they could not be further from the truth. But they are settled into that sinful pride. In their hearts is a comfortable, idolatrous sludge. In terms of what this warning meant to them then, back in Zephaniah's day, well, (laughs) this punishment on Judah, as I say, certainly was near and hastening quickly, as God warns here. About 30 or so years after this warning through Zephaniah, God carries this out. Babylon uh, is sent by God to destroy the capital, Jerusalem, and carries the survivors into exile. The holy people of God were cut off from the holy land when the near implication of this message was fulfilled in 586 BC. Unfortunately, though, we do also need to zoom back out now to that broader implication And think about Zephaniah's warning in light of of the whole Bible story. And this concept of the coming day of the Lord, as I say, keeps getting raised across that wider story of Scripture. Even after they come back from exile, and even 700 years or so later when Jesus comes, and even after Jesus ascends to heaven again, the day of the Lord keeps coming up in Scripture because it, it does speak of judgment on a much more cosmic scale a total and all-inclusive day. God's judgment on Judah serves as a, as a warning, therefore, of a much bigger judgment to come. And the general language of verse 17 at the end here of Zephaniah chapter 1 should, should again point us to that wider problem. I will bring distress upon them because they have sinned against the Lord, God says. I guess then, if, if anyone is you know, without sin, they might comfortably ignore this warning in Zephaniah about the day of the Lord. Otherwise, I guess they should tune in. As comforting as it is and, and might be for us to, to, you know, sit above this narrative and, and look down on Jerusalem and what they were doing in those times and focus on those Jerusalem specifics uh, in between, uh, the whole warning in Zephaniah 1 is actually bookended by universal language that speaks to everybody. Look with me again at the start, and, and, and now at, at the end of this chapter, at these bookmarks. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast, 
I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And now at the end, the other bookend of this chapter, I will bring distress on mankind, verse 17, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord is is universal in its wider sense. And that means it's relevant to us. We can't make sense, actually, of what God has done to save us, which is what we always like to dwell on as believers. We can't make sense of what God has done to save us, what his plans for us are, unless we first acknowledge properly where we do, in fact, stand before him in our inherent sinful state. We are sinners, friends, and we deserve judgment. That's where God has taken us here, isn't it? In, in his word through Zephaniah in chapter 1. We simply have to come to terms with, with God's holiness on the one hand and our sinfulness on the other. Because without first having a proper view of God and a proper view of us, we have no hope to get through this day when it comes. As we think about that wider angle, we might ask a few questions over Zephaniah chapter 1. First of all, is it right for God to be jealous, as verse 18 puts it? It's not just here in Zephaniah, by the way. God does speak of himself as jealous in Scripture, and specifically that he is jealous in the sense of wanting our exclusive devotion let me show you this from, from Exodus chapter 34. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, all objects for worship of false gods, for you shall worship no other god. For Yahweh, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And lest you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. When God is described as jealous, it is in terms of him wanting our worship and for our worship to be exclusively given to him. So, is it right? Is it right that God should be jealous like so? Well, that depends, I think, on whether we understand and accept the revelation in Scripture that there is one true God and that he gives us life and breath and everything else. If there is one true God who created all things and provides us with all things, then, 
then worship simply cannot be given to anyone or anything else. That would just be patently wrong. And God's jealousy would therefore be patently right. A second question we might ask, is this here in Zephaniah chapter 1, the same Lord as Jesus in the New Testament? Well, let's think about that as we run Zephaniah 1 through through the Jesus filter. And we more or less did actually answer this question last week, because Jesus spoke of himself as the Lord of the day. And so, yes, this Lord here in Zephaniah 1 is the same Lord as Jesus. There is no discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. In fact, it was Jesus who warned us at length about the coming day of judgment, and it was he who spoke to us more than anyone else about the consequence of hell on that day for all who will not find salvation first. For some reason, we subconsciously filter mostly the the judging aspect of God when we read through the Old Testament and catch mostly the merciful aspect of God in the New, but probably because we just don't read thoroughly enough in either. The truth is, both aspects of God run, run right through Scripture intertwined together. We must be clear on this point. Judgment is coming, and Jesus is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. But in the Incarnation, the Lord Jesus intervened early in the timeline. Just at the right time, Christ died to save sinners from this coming judgment. And with his death on the cross to atone for our sin, we learn how God's justice and mercy can both exist together, intertwined with each other, and how they both can prevail. At the end of the day, the judgment has been taken for us, if we only but trust Jesus for that. And so mercy is fully ours. And that is the only hope we have of surviving the day of the Lord, the scriptures do declare. Everyone is founded guilty in Zephaniah chapter 1. There is nowhere to hide and it will hit from top to the bottom. Everyone is judged and nothing we might offer can save us, verse 18. But friends, don't despair here in Zephaniah chapter 1. God is going to speak the gospel of hope later in the book. Despite this judgment that everyone deserves, God is going to promise a merciful salvation. But if we sit here today and we we already know about Jesus, we can already know exactly how God does that. God subs in for us in the judgment. God subs in for us. God takes the punishment, all of this judgment in Zephaniah 1, that all of us who are honest deserve, the Lord takes it upon himself. And so his righteous judgment against sin rolls down like a river. And at the same time, his arms are stretched out wide to shield all of those who he saves. The righteous anger of God at our sin came down on him. And that's why the gospel of Jesus can say, for example, in John 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Such good news for those who will receive it. That being said, that good news can only be truly appreciated by coming to terms first with with the framework that's set out here in Zephaniah chapter 1. And so a third question, is this judgment proportionate? I mean, granted, we're all sinful. That's one thing, sure. But, But to this extent, is such extreme judgment really called for? Is it reasonable, fair? Is it proportionate to our sin? We must remember that these are not Zephaniah's words, as verse 1 makes clear. These are the words of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. So this statement of our deserving sin, this universal language here, is, is the declaration from God. It's not the words of some wise man or, or uber-spiritual guy at the time in 7th century BC. This is the words of God. And the way I see it, God's warning through Zephaniah puts three calls on us that we'll discover as we work through this scripture. As how do we respond to this declaration? Three steps towards understanding his salvation and living our lives accordingly, therefore. Chapter 1 sets out, actually, the first of those steps. The first step we must take, and that step answers our question about whether this is proportionate. Be silent. Step 1 in verse 7, be silent, says God. Acknowledge where we stand on this matter. Acknowledge what he has said. Acknowledge that judgment must come. Acknowledge the truth that we have sinned before God. Be silent, God commands in verse 7. Hush! We instinctively grumble and kick and resist and try to nuance and and argue and defend and plead our case against God and his declarations on this. But Hush, says God. This must be the true state of things. We are sinful, and God has declared it so. And yes, the judgment is entirely proportionate, because our sin is against the God who created us and who gives us every blessing. So yes, as it happens, that should all be stripped away now if we have rejected him. Instead of defending, we should quietly contemplate how we're tracking in regard to such sin as listed out here in Zephaniah chapter 1. Even as we have come to faith in Jesus, we should be examining our lives and seeing how we still stand in regard to these things? How are we on idolatry and false worship in verses 4 through 6? Are we worshipping other gods? Are we putting other things above God in our life? Are we worshipping God and something else? We're not worshipping God at all the way that we should. 
Or are we following him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and worshipping him as our God? What about this apparent godless leadership in in verse 8? Granted, we may not be the king of Israel or the king's sons or whatever, but are we ignorant to those who watch us and, and imitate our lead? Or are we consciously striving to lead others into lives of true worship? But the violence and fraud in verse 9, or the indulgent, complacent lifestyles of verse 12. Did we get saved by Jesus, but then you know, gradually just stop checking for sin in our lives? Are we a bit blasé about sin because of the beauty and the wonder of the cross? Are we a bit blasé even? about God? Or have we been drawn into a a posture of introspective heart examination so as to let God weed sin more and more out of our life? As we think of this scripture in terms of us now, the first step we must take is to acknowledge what God has said. And with it all, be silent, God says in Zephaniah chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God and accept that this judgment is warranted. Hush is step one in the gospel according to Zephaniah. If you want the next two steps of of how we survive this day of the Lord according to the Gospel of Zephaniah, then be sure to come back next week. But if you can't wait that long, then, then read ahead yourself later, please. Or come and chat after the service. And if you can't even wait that long, then then spoiler alert for the series, I guess. The next step is that we repent. God is going to call us to repent in chapter 2. Because we will start to see in chapter 2 that he has made a way for people to repent and survive this coming judgment. And then step three is simply to wait. To wait with our trust and hope in him. God calls us simply to wait for his certain salvation in chapter 3. The day of the Lord will be a day of salvation for all who turn to him. But I say let's not rush too fast into that at the expense of catching this first in chapter 1. Let's first acknowledge properly where we rightly should stand before God as we meditate on this scripture during the coming week. Let's examine ourselves afresh and concede ourselves to be sinners dependent on God's salvation. Because when we acknowledge that truth, we also acknowledge God in his rightful role as our blessed Saviour. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture and for this frightening and awfully convicting word in Zephaniah chapter 1. We read here your declaration that that the scope of sin is universal and that we must be included. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus that we now know from the rest of your scriptures, that you have taken this judgment that we deserve and carried it out on him to save us from this. 
Help us to be patient as we wait for that message to shine through in the rest of Zephaniah. And even though we may have received this gospel in our lives, Lord, help us nevertheless to keep examining ourselves and help us to acknowledge areas of sin in our life. Take this text and have your way with us in our hearts through these words, through Zephaniah. Father, for those who have not yet come into the gospel of salvation in Jesus' name, I pray you would draw them into that truth as we work through this series, but, but even now, convict them for a purpose, to bring them to repentance and trust in Jesus' name for the only hope of salvation you have offered to us. Praise be to thy name, our Lord and God, forever and ever. Amen.